0: I'm Will Ross. I'm Devin Scott. We're here with the historian and host of the Cinephiliacs podcast, Peter Labuza, talking about montage. Specifically, we're going to be talking about montage in pre-code Hollywood movies back from the early 1930s. We're going to be talking about how it evolved, how it was influenced by Soviet montage theory, We're going to talk about how there was one iconoclastic filmmaker who created tiny flurries of creativity within otherwise stylistically restrained films using these montages and how those montages influence continues to reverberate through cinema to this day. Welcome to Film Formally. Okay, so today we're talking to Peter Labuza, host of the Cinephiliacs podcast, and we're going to be talking about a very particular, very academic-sounding subject, (laughs) pre-code Hollywood montages. Does that sound about right, Peter? Am I saying that? Because... It can be a bit particular whether you say montages or montage or.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a weird subject, but it's something I'm kind of fascinated by. I, I maybe maybe particularly the montage sequence, but all the implications that thinking about montage has, especially in this
0: sort of interesting period of like 28 to 34, 35. Just to zoom out even a little bit, we're going to have to sort of define our terms somewhat a little bit, especially for people who aren't really close to the subject, because mm-hmm. montage comes with a host of different meanings and implications. There's montage, the theoretical idea that was like proposed in Soviet cinema, especially by people like, most famously, Sergei Eisenstein. And mm-hmm. then there's a montage, which is often colloquially known as a seri- a, a sequence within a film especially a narrative film, that compresses time, action, or space, or most famously it would be a sports montage. And then there's the idea of montage, which is just the French word for editing, but that often comes up as its own term in papers that I've read. So we're going to be mostly talking about the former two. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, We're going to be talking about the idea of montage as a theoretical idea of editing. And we're going to be talking about montages, the sequences themselves that often use that technique heavily. My impression is, is this about right, Peter, that we're going to be talking about sort of the bridge, how how those terms got bridged together when the sort of common popular Hollywood notion of montage was turned into a notion of a sequence or an effect sequence within a film. Is that about right? (laughs)
1: Yeah, and I think one of the questions I think I was interested in maybe kind of trying to tackle this or think about this as a subject with you guys is, you know, those those first two types of montages that we're talking about um, sort of are seen as one in the same a little bit in the silent era, in the 1920s. Um, obviously, like, um, Sergei Eisenstein and Strike, uh, his 1924, 25 film, I forget the specific year in which he famously had the sequence where the film cuts between workers being slaughtered during a strike at a factory and a lamb being slaughtered and so you're supposed to put the two ideas together the workers are the ones being slaughtered um, for the by the Saris regime etc etc we're going to be talking about mostly sound films but you watch Hollywood films between say 24-25 25, 26, 27, I'm thinking of films like uh, King Vidor's The Crowd uh, has a lot of great examples of these montages that seemingly are influenced by films like Battleship, Patekman, and Strike, um, but are also kind of fulfilling this kind of very uh, specific idea of the montage, of setting up, of erasing space-time action to get things done quicker, so to say. And I think there's something that happens in. In 28, 29, 30, 31, 32 Sorry to name the specific years But where montage seems to go away Suddenly when the silent film era ends And you have the introduction to sound And there's a lot of Films, you know, I was kind of parsing through films from like 2930 and there aren't really films that have these montage sequences. And then suddenly they come back really, really quickly in 31, 32, 33. So there's something technologically as long as well as historically that I'm kind of curious about that is it's also wrapped up in these political questions.
2: Yeah, I find it interesting that you mentioned this—the whole naming specific years thing—because we're talking about a period in time where I think film, is popular film aesthetics, were evolving at a faster pace than they ever have before or since. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is because of the almost like the like the high silent era transitioning into the early sound era, where you had this complete uh, rewriting of film form. And it does feel like almost silent films, especially of the late twenties, um, or I should say mid to late twenties. Having been influenced, especially by Soviet use of montage, and became a lot more free in terms of their how they deal with temporal reality, you can almost see a lot of late Murnau stuff or Murnau's late silent stuff as like almost one long montage, a lot of it in the, in the mm-hmm. sense we're talking about. But by the time you get to sound, uh, or at least the introduction of sound, which you know, I guess occurred in 1928, but really didn't 100% take over until. 2930, which is insanely fast. To put it in today's perspective, that would be, you know, 2017, we still only have silent films, and now we're completely saturated sound. You had this kind of a huge push towards a more, I'd say, theatrical. And I mean that in the presentational mode of filmmaking, because sound enabled and often required that because of the restrictions of that. So when Montage was introduced, I get the sense that it was almost introduced in this highly cloistered way, where previously, you know, quote-unquote Montage, in the first sense we're talking about, was almost the defining aesthetic of a lot of films in the late 20s. It became like, okay, let's cut into this three- minute sequence of jimmy stewart looking at around washington and then we're back (laughs) to essentially um classical hollywood realism which i guess we'll have to also define at some point yeah um so I, i find that dynamic really interesting long story short
1: yeah, no, I think that's a really important way that this is sort of occurring. And, you know, when you watch those films from 2930, like some of them, I like to say that, like, sometimes I'll see these films made out of Hollywood that run, oh, you think, oh, you're in for something that's 65 minutes long, and it feels like it's three hours long for some reason. And like, I'm, I, I'm it's partially a screenwriting problem because it's like, usually I find out these uh, films are adapted from 600 page novels and like, nobody just knows how to write Plot yet, necessarily, for the sound era and the way they understood for the silent era. But I think there's this yeah. question of that we need to show off our sound techniques. More than anything else, and anything that seems to be this relic of the silent era, like that, these montage sequences that were so popular, not just and especially not just in Hollywood, but like I think about the Kinugasa films from uh, Japan in 1927, 28, *A Page of Madness* and *Crossroads*. Right, these types of montages that. propped up globally and suddenly Hollywood seems very, very afraid to do them for two or three years. And that's like, I partially, I don't know, like, you know, I've not parsed around in the primary documents as much for that type of issue, but there was a lot of questions, obviously of making films fast, but making them fast with sound. And there seems to be this concern that's going on that we don't know that we can't go back to just making silent Film again, which these montage sequences often are, right? That they're overlaid soundtracks on top of sequences. I mean, the more interesting ones that we'll talk about, the ones that sort of use and combine sound in interesting ways.
0: But there's, I feel like, there's this anxiety that you can't do the montage sequence because it represents the old. I, I, I wonder if you can invert that idea of why it was stopped. though I mean, Both may be true, but for example, early film uh, from let's say 1895 through there's no specific year, but let's say, roughly 1920. There was much more of a theatrical, much more of a realist, as we might understand it, approach to filmmaking, and a lot of that might just be the idea of trying to understand this new form by adapting conventions of other forms, like theater, like literature. And as time goes on, and people experiment more with what can be done in the form while still presenting a coherent story, hey, we can go pretty crazy with editing, right? And then suddenly you introduce sound and that becomes this whole new dimension formally that you have to account for. And so I wonder if it's not a matter of trying to avoid newness per se so much as a matter of having this entirely new component and just having to retreat to, okay, let's let's try to figure out this component within a framework that we know we can accomplish. And by the time people have done one or two or three films in a fairly conservative mindset, there's a little bit more room to poke out into the corners by incorporating montage sequences. Those two ideas might seem to conflict, but they they might both be true, right? Like a, a sense of montage is a tenet of the old, as well as montage is, even then, might have still been radical or complex and therefore a bit intimidating or difficult to incorporate because if you're suddenly having people talking then the idea of breaking up the sequence of them talking is very different than breaking up a dialogue sequence that's driven by intertitles in a silent
1: and i would say i'm not particular on like the historical debates that are like really happening at this time like you know i've poked around and like there's some debates in like american cinematographer and the cinematographer technicians' uh, journals that are like, are these just gimmicky? Are they, like, you know, are they, like, a waste of time because they don't get to the narrative fast enough? Like, and I think it's interesting in that some of these films... the more interesting montages are not necessarily the ones that are, we think of in terms of quote unquote, moving the story faster um, that I think a lot of people like, as I think, Will you brought up in your introduction, like obviously now the most like famous montage in any film, I guess would be Rocky, right? That like Rocky is a film in which, Oh, we've moved the story forward like we got from the point where Rocky is like still kind of weak he's still living and now he's strong enough to face uh and go in the ring and like that would have been like how much time of space or whatever and obviously like you get the music and everything and that certainly helps a lot of ways and I think in some of the sequences that I was thinking about it's like the montages are um Some of them work that way. Some of them are more creative and trying to find other ways of representing space and time. And they're not necessarily about moving things forward as much as establishing mood and establishing space. And I think that was part of the debates that some of the cinematographers and special effects departments uh, were trying to have around this time about like, well, are these sequences necessary? And i I, yeah, I think that's where I'm kind of coming into this is like, what what do these sequences represent? And especially what do they represent when we look back at them now and then there's these moments that kind of explode in these films that we're more familiar with of just kind of following continuity editing. And they suddenly have these moments that we could call some sort of a quote unquote pure cinema.
2: I, I think a lot of this has to do with at least a popular desire I see in pop culture to kind of reframe um, multi-purpose tools as almost a one- a very specific trope right Ooh, you know if, if yeah. one were to liken a montage to like you know a stick you know <laughs> um hey. you know just the most basic possible thing you can build into anything a basic building block versus you know a very specific stick. crescent wrench with like one shape um i think a lot of people see it as the latter that was a terrible analogy but i hope i got it the idea <laughs> the best known of... building
0: block there is a stick, <laughs> a stick.
2: <laughs> i was like okay a brick uh no because I, I always saw montage as a more diffuse term to describe a certain mode of outside of the, you know, Eisenstein's five types and all that. Um like a certain mode of presentation that doesn't rely on classical Hollywood continuity in that moment. Mm-hmm. Classical Hollywood continuity. You have let's say three angles, wide shot, two close ups, they're all temporally continuous with, with one another, regardless of when they're shot. You're supposed to believe that these moments are happening in the same length of time, linearity of time, and you have a quote unquote scene A montage breaks free of that by using ellipses and using a more impressionistic or expressionistic set of tools, tell the story in a more overtly visual way, usually. But oftentimes I find montage is spoken of as this very prescriptive thing where it's, oh, now let's go into a montage, you know, the Rocky sports montage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think even Mr. Smith is a great example of that. I've seen that exact thing parodied a hundred times instead of seen as okay that's just one outcome of a very specific tool set
1: yeah and I think maybe if we can I, I don't know if when you guys want to kind of transition but thinking about this figure who um, is sort of the titular figure of this era um, I'm going to hopefully not his name but Slavko Vorkovic. um Slavko Vorkabich is a Serbian born at the turn of the century. He lives in France. He's eventually discovered by Rex Ingram as a, like, as a drawer. And eventually first comes to Hollywood, doesn't really fit in. He's working a little bit in um, Rex Ingram's studio and a little bit as an extra. Ends up moving to Santa Barbara and then kind of becomes an amateur filmmaker. And before we get into his particular films, he's someone who I think if you look at the ways that he... His career traces uh, from amateur and f- experimental filmmaking to working at Paramount and RKO and MGM, and eventually pairing up with Frank Capra on *Mr. Smith Goes to Washington*, and then doing a lot of work on the *This Is Why We* f- the 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 Why We Fight* series uh, that uh, Capra did for the government during World War II. Like he's someone who's really read up on all the different ideological issues are coming up. He, you know, he reads Eisenstein, he reads Kuleshov. At the same time, he's also very well versed in the debates within Hollywood that are more on the technical side of it, um, as well as that he's sort of siding in certain radical circles. So it's like kind of this question. I think he's a figure that seems to wrap up all these questions of, well, what is montage? What can we do it for? And I think what's interesting about his career is the way that he often seemed to find different ways to use montage in the way you're kind of talking about. He did not see it as a one-size-fits-all tool for doing things. He was interested in trying to use them in different ways, in different sequences. I was just rereading this, uh, where he sends Frank Capra a different ending to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington that they wanted to film, where basically at the film, Jimmy Stewart would have been, it would have been back at the boys camp, that the camp that his whole legislation was about. And like the way that he describes it on paper, where he's like, kind of traces the shot's like, in words over time, where it's like, you know, it moves to a giant close-up in this, and it's like, you know, you think about, like, he's really someone who thought about all the different purposes of montage. Sadly, of course, like, we only do think about that one type of montage.
0: Yeah, the the breadth of the different Vorkopic sequences was maybe the most impressive thing, and, and we'll be able to touch on that if we're going to be talking about Vorkapich a little bit. I, I think it's worth really talking about Maybe his still his most famous work as an artist, The Life and Death of 9413, A Hollywood Extra, which he co-directed. I forget who he co-directed it with.
1: It's um, Greg Toland, the cinematographer of right. uh, Citizen Kane, as well as Robert Florey, who was a very good director throughout the 30s. Um, he did um, a Marx Brothers film. I forget which one. He directed this very, very good uh, anime Wong spy thriller. It's like uh, the rare film where anime Wong is the star of the film. Um, it's uh, called Daughter of Shanghai. It's really good. So he was
0: a very good filmmaker through
1: the 30s. I mean,
0: all three of them went on to have great careers. The Life and Death of 9413 is really, really interesting to me in that it has quite a large pedigree among historians of experimental filmmaking in the United States for just being stylistically radical and capturing a lot of the imagination. But it's also really interesting in that it, even more than a lot of experimental films at the time, has an extremely distinct and obvious and easy to follow narrative with characters mm-hmm. and, and an arc and locations and that's something that I wonder if he had made 9413 with a much less obvious narrative component if he would be more intimidating to the studios who ended up hiring him to do quote-unquote effect sequences or montages for their films, because *Life and Death* is actually bought by United Artists and plays in front
1: of Sadie Thompson, uh, which is a Raw Walsh, uh, Gloria Swanson movie in 1928, and like I think, as uh, David James, who's a very, very good scholar of experimental film, has written, it, it, it somehow this film that's about destroying the capitalist system or at least like you know the alienation of the capitalist system because it's sort of about this um you know individual who's like uh, wants to be a great artist. He gets tattooed 9143 on his head um, and sort of realizes it becomes sort of alienated by the Hollywood industry in this very abstract way. Um, but this film becomes a calling card, and like all three are quickly bought up by studios, which I don't think, you know, I think it's one of these questions that. Um, is the same thing that we see with, like, what happened to the German emigres who come from out of Ufa. Um, and there's, you know, the push in especially uh, studios like Fox during the late silent era to do more Ufa-like films. Uh, if you watch something like the late uh, silent films of Howard Hawks, the, like the couple of silent films he did, or like the John Ford films like Four Sons, like they're heavily... Uh, influenced by fw murnau and at the same yeah, time they, this they is
0: literally a... institutionalized a murnau influence yeah. i know at fox yeah
1: right and then you know we could say the same thing with like the stu- uh i forget if it was selznick or thalberg who really wanted to get eisenstein to the studios and they just couldn't cut cut it in the yeah. way right like hollywood loves to look at experimental stuff and figure out how to incorporate it i think the question is kind of like well why does vorkapitch decide like yes, this place that I felt alienated from um, like five years ago where I felt like I wasn't able to do real work or anything, I suddenly want to join in. And I think, you know, it's kind of this question where um, there, Hollywood is, of course, it's changing in 28, 29. There definitely seems to be a changing of the guard in a lot of ways where a lot of the silent film Titans are falling down, a lot of new stars and directors and studios are even changing. I mean, we're talking about a period in which like the studios are like losing money a lot in like trying to formulate this new system of sound and don't really know. So I wonder if he genuinely thought like he could change the way that films are made when he entered. this is just total speculation, but I think there's this kind of sense that like the film Life and Death seems to be really based on Vorkovich's own experience, even if it is this abstract style where it's, you know, colliding images, shapes. I love the way that, like, you know, you get the sign that, I mean, this is talk about a use of interesting montage that you have to do in the silent era where we see 9143 keep calling the studios to... Um, See if there's casting today. And he cuts to a close up of a shadowy figure talking. We can't hear him at all. And then there's a big sign. In the skyline of Los Angeles, quote unquote, that says no casting today. So it sort of has to use these three shots to tell something that actually will become easier in sound where you could just, you know, you can eliminate one of those shots. But it works to create this more expressionist, um, alienating tone because of the silence of it
2: that kind of um paradox of i'd say very bitter anti-hollywood statement essentially enabling i think his uh career there and then then having that style used you know for in its first major form to criticize hollywood come to almost redefine how its films are made or at least become a key component a tool used in films it almost feels like it's what would happen if like wizard of speed and time became a major hit or something (laughs) and yeah and 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 uh, I can't help but think that Vorkapich was correct in if, if he thought he could change Hollywood. Right, his very specific methods through which he deployed his montages weren't inevitable at all. Right, there, there's this mm-hmm. kind of sense that oh, oh yeah. obviously this is the next logical step in evolution. I, I tend to be skeptical of that claim, yeah. but I think in Vorkipitch's case, it's, 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 it could not be more untrue in that his very specific way of cutting montages, because of him, became the standard trope we all think of when we think of montages. Um, if he was a little less ambitious, the Rocky montage could easily, easily have been his work, right? Um, <laughs> so much of what passes for montages in modern cinemas is essentially still just aping Vorkypitch.
1: And I think one of the bigger questions of this is sort of this question of, like, authorship that, like, obviously film studies and film criticism has been dealing with since the 1960s. But there's this, you know, there's evidence that both points to Vorkovich as a nature, uh, of at least the sequences that are put together, as well as sequence, you know, questions that we should have to question uh, how, where he fits in within the collaborative process. Um, You know, there's evidence that uh, he's at least talked about that under when David O. was running RKO, and he was there from, I think, about 1929 to 1933, 34, if I'm forgetting my dates, um, is that he had complete freedom, including, you know, did put all together, all the shots, including like, you know, shooting them, designing them, editing them, that this was almost, you know, it was like its own separate B unit, uh, from the rest of the Hollywood system. So like, you know, there's a lot of evidence that says, and this is not necessarily true of every director who worked in Hollywood, but a lot of directors, especially say someone like George Cukor, who, um, Vorkapich worked with on four films, um, really was there to work with the actors. And Cukor is an amazing director of actors, but he was not necessarily a technician in the way that we might say that someone like John Ford, uh, at least there's a lot more evidence that John Ford thought about where the camera was going to go a lot. And so you had spaces for people like Vorkovich who wanted to design certain sequences and because they are kind of divided off into their own department in the special effects department, had a lot of authority to create things as they wanted, and thus they kind of can claim authorship over these sequences that they, you know, did all the work with it might just say montage in the script. And then it's like, well, what's that montage going to be? And you can kind of create whatever you want. And I think that sort of question of like the freedom and flexibility um, to design as you want, as long as it looks like, quote unquote, a montage at the end as recognizable to any, you know, studio producer allowed it to kind of be what it could be.
2: I think you can make a lot of comparisons to, um, to musicals and uh, specifically directors who specialize in musical numbers there. Right. Mm -hmm. Like Bubsy Berkeley really came to mind to me um, where in his early work before he, you know, claim director credit. Films that he worked on as choreographer were essentially other people's films that you'd essentially cut to a Bubsy Berkeley film uh, at a certain point, and uh, then you know cut back to the to the wider film at large. So you had something like *Dames*, which is um, credited as a director to Ray Enright, but then Bubsy Berkeley directed all the specific musical numbers, and it really feels like two completely different movies. And uh, *Vorka* is the first example I can think of. of an editor essentially or you know he's created a special effects in his early films who could kind of claim that same kind of micro it's almost like an enclave of auteurship in a wider film
0: one of the greatest pleasures thankfully of Vorkopic's sequences within the broader films is that they're so well self-contained like you can virtually always just snip the moment right before and the moment right after one of his sequences begins, because it can sometimes be a little hard to know exactly where they begin and end. But they very often work extremely well as self-contained statements. Uh, and mm-hmm. sometimes that means you just get a flat-out experimental film, like in um, oh gosh, not what Price Hollywood, uh, Crime Without <laughs> Passion. Was, Crime Without Passion. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah. I want to God, be that, one, that one. That one
2: was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, crime without passion is insane. But the other thing I wanted to bring up is that there's there's the I mean, he absolutely no question about it had a lasting influence on Hollywood implementation of montage. Certainly, at least at the time, the idea he successfully to some degree practiced, you know, independence as a filmmaker within the Hollywood system in that he could create these sequences that worked pretty well as self contained statements, even if they didn't have his name directly on them. But there's the other side of, you know, what's the least punk rock thing in 2020? And the answer is punk rock, right? <laughs> because over time, punk rock becomes, you know, easily subsumed by the music industry. The things that are so radical about it, like its its roughness of production, the fact that it minimizes its use of chords, the fact that it uses only a handful of instruments, become quite attractive and easily co-opted by music labels for, you know, mass-marketed material that isn't too expensive to produce and still has a quote-unquote attitude that they can appeal to a countercultural demographic with. So, as a result, you know, today, you know, punk rock is certainly within the strictures of what punk originally was, especially as practiced by someone like the Ramones. You know, it's it's not exactly musically exciting to listen to green day today and that's no comment on whether green day is good or bad as a band but i think that touches a little bit on the idea of the perils of trying to revolutionize the way films are made within a system that's built to subsume ideas more than to it's designed
2: to co-op things because that's innovation Yeah.
0: yeah I think, um, you know, in their
1: sort of canonical text, the classical Hollywood system, 1917 to 1960, uh, David Bordwell, Janet Steiger and Kristen Thompson, uh, there's at least one brief section in montage. And of course, the thing about why montage is allowed to exist, even though it breaks every rule of continuity, is because it's within a narrative Hollywood quote-unquote machine, right? They, I mean, the Crime Without Passion sequence that, you know, you said, yeah, you clip it off, you've got one of the greatest avant-garde films, is, of course, the pre-title sequence to the film. And I haven't seen the rest of the film, but I've been told, you know, it's got some innovative cinematography throughout and maybe, I think, one more montage in it. But otherwise, it's contained within a very, very classical Hollywood narrative. And, of course, that was the interesting thing is, I think in a lot of these sequences that um vorkapich did and other montage experimenters did they're essentially being told to create a sequence that sits outside the narrative but is still contained within the narrative frame so you know nobody i mean this like i wish like audiences were told to respond to these or like you know we had like notes on things but like nobody left or we don't hear about people leaving screenings of these movies like either complaining or talking about the montage because they're designed to talk about the narrative and even Vorkopic in his lectures at Columbia University in the 30s said like you know um, there's editing for montage and editing for everything else everything else editing needs to be you know silent and invisible and here it's allowed to be free but ultimately that freedom is contained by the silent and visible and so you know there's these kind of questions and you know I think this ultimately comes to a question of how do we treat audiences almost in a way because like our audience is like able to see sort of the ruptures and breaking of the system. You know, there's evidence to this in both ways. There's been historians debating this for years and years and years. Um, but I think you also see it in vorkopich's own career in the way that he's trying to break things in different ways and try and, you know, at least treat them and at least treat them as emotional objects as Eisenstein wrote about as well. And like, you certainly see this in say the what price Hollywood sequences this is of of course, the first film that became the *Stars is Born quadrilogy, whatever. All the *Stars Born movies come from What Price Hollywood. And um, the sequence that Vorkovich put together is the final sequences, which is the death of the star who... So it's Lowell Sherman's death sequence, which, of course, you know, has this swirling effect that superimposes on the entire sequence um, and, you know, is slowly recalling images we've already seen from the film of sort of his life up and down. And, of course, at the final moment of pulling out the gun and shooting, we get very, very quick flashes. Now, this is all for an extreme emotional effect, um, which builds into the story. And yet it's still sort of, you know, you can't watch it without feeling something being done to you as an audience member at least we you know it's hard to think about so i think it's one of these things like um it's both easy to suggest these are objects of pure cinema as well as suggest oh but they're still subsumed within the larger hollywood system the capitalist system et etc cetera, etc cetera. and of course the weird answer is they're both and like that contradiction is i think what fascinates me about them
2: I think familiarity is such a good way to smuggle in experimentalism in just about any context. I mean, think about all the genre cinema that um, that manages to do really, really non commercial things because they've packaged it in a really easy context, right? Um, I, I rewatched Badlands recently and I'm like, this film mm. would never have gotten any traction. And I'm talking about Terrence Malick's 73, kind of film that on the surface looks like it's going to be another Bonnie and Clyde. That film manages to smuggle in essentially being a straight up art house. Um, uh, almost avant-garde piece of cinema but because it's dressed up like a bonnie and clyde retread um, people accepted it but i think the same thing applies to all this and same thing applies to you know musical numbers or even action sequences that break all those rules i mean the 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 oddest example of this i can think of in a highly commercial film is in the 2011 disney winnie the pooh film (laughs) when essentially you have what's 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 a a highly experimental acid trippy sequence that actually uses a lot of Orkin Pictures lessons um, in a film for very small children, <laughs> and um, and you know if, if you sh- if, if I'd shown that to uh, you know a class of six year olds outside that context, you'd be like, what is this LSD propaganda? But no, I mean, it's you know
1: <laughs> you don't even have to go to Winnie the Pooh; just go to Dumbo and the elephant, the pink elephants on exactly, parade sequence, yeah. right? Like this is sort of like a classic where you this is like. I mean this is the weird way we watch films like there's one sense that we watch them as coherent objects and then the way but often they're both their production their way that we receive them and like I think there's also this larger, and this is why I'm thinking about this audience question as well is like um, you know there's the way I think especially in the silent era there's the way we're supposed to think of these films as like playing in grand palaces to 2000 people etc cetera, etc cetera. and then there's like the theater in like small time can which you know might have a piano is being interrupted every 20 minutes to replace the real because they don't have a uh, change projection like the way okay. that we receive films and so I think often like we can break these up and mess with them and I think like that's part of like the weirdness of kind of putting them together and seeing like the different ways that people want to put together montages in different ways. So like the two examples of the Vorkypich, uh montage that I chose, What Price Hollywood and The Crime Without Passion, um, you know, What Price Hollywood is a very emotional one. It's not about changing time or space, though it recalls previous time. The Crime Without Passion one is like totally divorced. Like this is the first thing you get. And it's like this, you know, experimental sequence of like, you know, like it starts with right, like the gun and the eye, it has this weird like, you know, like, very French surrealist aspect to it, and then the Furies emerging out of this blood pool, each one terrorizing New York, and it's like, you know, you're just kind of assaulted with the images in a way that I think it's kind of hard to describe. Um, And I feel like that was one where, like, I can't imagine whatever the film does, which I haven't seen, ironically. I've only seen the Vorkopic sequence, but that the, the rest of the film can, like erase that memory of that, uh, the, of
0: that assault that you kind of viscerally feel when you watch that sequence. This is a bit divorced from the topic, but the verticality of that sequence, like just the enormous emphasis on vertical motion, on objects aligned vertically is absolutely insane. And, and tangentially is something you could never do in a film uh, shot in, say, Cinemascope listen to our cinema. Oh, no, up, so folks. <laughs>
1: Definitely
2: not. What really surprised me, because I'd never seen um, anything from What Price Hollywood or Crimes Without Passion, and and what really struck me about those two sequences of the ones we saw in particular was that um, how resistant they are to the almost overly literal cliche we have in our heads of those type of sequences. Mm-hmm. The images we see are actually, I found, slightly adjacent to the meaning we're supposed to get from them. It's not beating us over the head in the way that we think of old-timey montages. You know, the old newspaper montage that's parodied and everything. It's evocative in a way that feels very purposeful.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, even if you don't, like, I think that's one of the things that we're compared to, say, Life and Death of the Hollywood Extra, where all the montage elements go toward this thematic idea of alienation of the labor aspect of like, you know, that like we get the sense of like, you know, I think, will as you said, that it's a very clear narrative film in a way that's very different from the montages that uh, Vorkapitsch became later known for, um, that it's like all the montage goes to the effect where it seems like he had a very clear idea of wanting to describe his emotional history of Hollywood in the 20s and found these very different, clever ways to kind of put it together. And then that's what's interesting in, say, like the Crime Without Passion sequences, right, I think as you say, is that like it doesn't feel clear it feels aesthetic in a way. And I mean, I mean Vorkovich talked about his term for pure cinema I think was true cinema. And so like part of it is like you can't like just explain it. Like I think about like maybe like you talk about uh you know uh, teaching film in a way like, right. We usually show sequences in films that though, like, look at, we choose the medium shot because it allows us to get clarity on the actor's body. You choose the long shot to choose loneliness. And like the shots in the sequence, which of course it's hard to describe any individual shot because they don't necessarily line up. None of them have a clear purpose. And that's kind of the fun, exciting part of it.
2: Stuff like this is what is a great aid in, furthering a, a long-term goal of mine, which is to continue questioning the previous assumptions we have about the contract between the audience and the filmmaker in terms of suspension and disbelief and buying mm-hmm. into a narrative. We're still, in 2020, of all things, operating almost entirely, at least in pop cinema, on classical Hollywood realist precepts, right? You have to... Mm-hmm. Suspension and disbelief. The audience has to believe what they're seeing on the screen. And, um, and the very fact, in my opinion at least, that people can take an edit like a specific like a single cut and not fall out of the film um and moreover can take a whole sequence like the one in crime without passion and not be one utterly confused and two completely divorced from the reality of the picture Mm -hmm. really to me signifies that the relationship between the audience and believability of what's on screen is way more porous and way more abstract and less concrete than is commonly believed
1: i mean this is a different topic, but you often see this in Hong Kong screenwriting, right? I think this is often David Bordwell's written this a bunch. Like one of the most famous precepts of Hollywood uh narrative screenwriting is the rule of three. You need to repeat something Three times in order for the audience to get it. Um, and Hong Kong filmmaking often has like the rule of zero. Like they won't even explain things and they just assume, well, the audience will pick it up eventually or if it's, or it's probably just not important. And so, yeah, I think this sort of question of like what, what is sort of like the contract with the audience is sort of like always really, really fascinating in a way. And that's why, you know, when I was choosing some of the other montages to look at and I was looking at, um, Uh, two Paramount films uh, from 1932, Trouble in Paradise and Love Me Tonight. They're two examples of montages that, um, again... Aren't actually doing the work of montage as we quote unquote conceive of it. Um, they're sort of more doing the work of rhythm, of tone setting, of pace. Um, to take the trouble in paradise sequence. So um, this is of course a nerds Lubitsch film. It opens with a con man um, and he falls in love. And but at a point it needs to move the action from Venice to Paris. Um, So what happens in the sequence is that we go to a radio broadcasting center where we hear the announcement of the crime that just took place. And that crime is then told through, um, uh, through a police chief that's switched out with an advertiser who advertises this perfume company, Colette, that Kay Francis's character, who we haven't met, runs. So we get this sort of brief intercutting of this sort of Colette. Perfume with these, you know, we get cuts with these billboards that are all kind of amusing, that kind of gives a sense of the, you know, the scope of this empire of this perfume company, as well as these shots of these women putting on it, all to then cut to the factory where Colette perfume is made. Now, another film would not necessarily need to, you could have just literally cut from Venice to Paris. And got it there without necessarily needing that radio sequence. But so, why does, you know, whether it's Lubitsch or someone at the studio saying, like, we need to have the sequence, that's a sequence that does a lot for in- creating an interesting rhythm to the film that, again, like, slows it down from the narrative in the way that Lubitsch, I think, always does um, as on a tour, quote unquote. Um, but again, it's sort of using montage in a way that actually extends the film. Um, while still filling this uh, gap of, like, well, why are we moving from Venice to there in a weird way? So, like, that was when I was really curious about, actually.
2: It's also very self-consciously playful. It almost seems like more of a tonal gesture than anything else to me, where it's like, yeah, we could just cut from this to this. Why not have fun with it? Um, Love Me Tonight's interesting, too, though, because...
0: Another film that uh, Peter recommended a sequence from. Yeah, I'm
2: um, just the opening to Love Me Tonight where um, you have a series of establishing shots kind of of Paris, but they're really there to establish the rhythm of the city, right? The, um, the noises the city makes that then kind of congeal into the first opening song of the film.
1: I mean, that one, I I always think about it. One, because it's, like, one of my favorite films uh, ever. Like, that is, like, a Tashlin, like, Looney Tunes comedy, like, made in 1932. Like, I just think it's absolutely ridiculous and insane. Um, But, like, that was one where I was thinking about, like, okay, so one of the things that happens that when we you know, we think about these montage sequences, and this is certainly true of even Vorkapitch's Vorkapitch seems like not necessarily anti-sound, but he's not interested in using sound in his sequences. He wants to film silent sequences that then sound can be added onto at the producer's the studio's discretion. Now, the What Price Hollywood does have that good whirling sound. That's the only sound we hear along with the gunshot. And, like, obviously that has a lot of effect. I don't know how much that was his idea versus others. And I get the sense in general he just didn't care about sound. So, what I find interesting about a choice like the Love Me Tonight sequence is here's a film in which like the first thing we're going to do is use sound in an instant way alongside montage, right? So we get a series of shots, each that introduce one sound, the sound lines up. This is obviously now a like classic gag in a lot of ways, right? Where you build a soundtrack out of like the sounds of the street and everything. But like, here's one that's like, okay, we're going to use montage in this way that directly works with the soundtrack. And we need to plan all these things out that you're going to have these shots. That we're going to use these Specific sounds, and each one of these sounds is gonna work to create this. And this is, of course, like Paramount was going through a huge transition in sound in thirty-one, thirty-two, where they were moving away from um, uh, filming only sound on stage. So, like an example, just bring up another Lubitsch film, like The Love Parade. Right? Those are sequences where, like, literally, you have the orchestra in the room um, shooting alongside the camera to do the musical sequences, because that's the only way we know how to shoot sound. Now we yeah, can and do asynchronous Yeah, the only a way to cut was to have
2: two cameras, right?
1: Exactly. Or was that the, yeah. Yeah. So now we can do asynchronous sound. So, like, this is a great moment where I think you start to see the play. In a way, you also start to see the codification of a certain type of montage, a sort of Rocky montage, That though this is a different type, but one where you establish a space by cutting... A bunch of different shots around an area to create, quote unquote, a city symphony in a lot of ways, but literally the symphony. And I think it's interesting both as a, diver- uh, as a version of like, oh, a very, very interesting experimental sequence, as well as a codification of the principles of montage.
2: I went through kind of a journey of, through early sound musicals last year and Love Me Tonight felt like such almost like an iconoclastic example of mm-hmm. that because it experiments and deconstructs the nature of what a musical number is unlike any other film I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, in a different way, every scene. Yeah. That's amazing. And, the amazing thing about Love Me Tonight. It, every yeah. scene approaches that problem differently.
2: I mean, I I think the one that stuck with me most was probably the one that is most well known, which is Isn't It Romantic? Oh, yeah. The whole idea of, you know, who a musical number belongs to is democratized because it cuts from one set of... Singers interpreting it to another, to another. You have the song sung by a cabbie, who's then transferred to a military march, and then uh, a group of, uh, I think they're implied to be Roma, turning it into a sad fiddle number. And mm-hmm. that kind of cut from one to the next is a play with time and ellipsis that I don't think I've seen before or since in a musical number. And if it's done since, it's probably referencing that one.
0: I've yeah, seen th- it, and similarly to that opening, it's it's become a classic gag where. Everyone recognizes it when they see it, but they don't know what it's from. I'm
1: trying to think if I've ever se- I've seen it in other films since then, but certainly not before. But I, well, no I mean, really it's built just hard. It. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, you, you, well, nobody's built on anything on Love Me Tonight, which is just like again, like the greatest thing that pre cinema ever created.
0: Um, I mean, incidentally, the, the the this is apropos of nothing. The my single favorite little formal gig in Love Me Tonight is when they say that they have to go away quietly and they hold up yeah. a finger to their mouths. And then it cuts to a slow motion shot of the horses that everyone's on riding away, implying that the horses are just going extremely slowly <laughs> to <Yeah>. stay quiet. <laughs> and yeah. it's uh, it's and what's great about it is that it's a gag that is played straight to the degree that there's slow, if I remember right, like waltzing music, like classical waltzing music, dreamy mm-hmm. music playing over it. And so it's hilarious and at the same time like heartfelt and just showcasing this like extremely beautiful moment. I don't know, it's Yeah. I mean, it's this let me tonight is good. This
1: this brings up a larger question both that and the question of the montage again of this question that I think it, it's so unfortunate in the way that we're, you know, both in the way that I think critics talk about it but in the way even that like I have taught myself in a way that like classical hollywood was one thing it was a set of rules it was a bible and there was no break and like you know you just see so many different instances in so many different films where all those rules are suddenly broken all the time and yes they still get codified within maybe the classical hollywood narrative and like that is ultimately possibly the thing that you know separates out the the questions at the end of the day from like quote unquote experimental films but i feel like the rules were never as like strict as we're often taught to think they are and i think it's so often in these films that we see these ruptures and it's not even that and i think audiences at the time were not like unaware of them they accepted them in the way that I think you know Will you talked about like the codification of different types of film from 1895 to 1920 like I think it you know it codified to extent but there were always things that were coming out and being played with and that people just kind of accepted them in a lot of ways and I think that's kind of the exciting thing about these montage sequences is like there were spaces where Hollywood you know craftsmen were allowed to be really really um playful and find new ways to do things and as long as it could be ultimately served within the film sequence of uh, the you know from the beginning of the film to the end of the film like you could do a lot of different things and have fun
2: i always saw kind of classical hollywood realism as almost this this gravitational pull that the commercial elements of cinema as an industry would attempt and have always at least attempted to pull filmmakers towards and then filmmakers and audiences can deviate from that. Um, But it's almost, you're you're struggling upstream against the commercial forces and that's a very reductive way to put it, but that's kind of a lens I've always seen it through at least. Um, It's almost like my stereotypical idea of the Hollywood producer is like classical Hollywood realism personified and that's half accurate.
0: (laughs) And and we see even in instances that we've talked about where, radical stylization was adopted and even encouraged. I mean, there's the idea of the montage department, you know, the Vorkapitch's department within MGM being its own different section, and they are regularly appointed to work on a very specific kind of sequence within each film, as radically different as those sequences might be. And then you've got the Murnau example we already talked about, where you have this extremely progressive director who the studio recognizes that director's progressiveness, and what's their response to that is to tell everybody, "Hey, make films like this person who makes films like no one else." Mm-hmm. A really, really,
2: really dippy question I have. If, <laughs> if the if the heads of MGM Studio deem a really progressive aesthetic as their house style, is it still progressive?
0: That's Fox. Fox. That was Fox's. <laughs> Sorry, Fox. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's exactly it. Yeah. That's yeah. The, that's the core
1: problem of it, right? I mean, this is one of the things I've been thinking. And as you guys know, I wrote this dissertation that's kind of actually about like contracts and the way that contracts and legal um, history kind of coalesced around Hollywood and create a new legal culture in the 40s, 50s, 60s, which we think about as a time of the breakup of the Hollywood studio system and the kind of creation of like this divide between art and money. And I think still one of the undersung questions of Hollywood in the 30s. In a lot of ways, and kind of the under heralded and I think appreciated aspect is that the money men and the creative men were the same people in the producers. The people like Selznick, um, like Thalberg, like Jack Warner, like these were not people who only cared about money. Like, I mean, I just think of like, uh, you know, one of my favorite books ever written is the Daryl Zanuck book about the Daryl Zanuck memos. It's all the memos that Daryl Zanuck sent to every filmmaker all the time because at the end of the day on a Daryl Zanuck day at um, Warner Brothers or at Fox he went and watched dailies for hours and hours and wrote memos to every filmmaker to tell them why he thought they worked or what they didn't work. The ones particularly between Zanuck and John Ford are really really interesting in a lot of ways and like I think actually like speak a lot like there's someone who's like you know Zanuck's idea as head of production at Fox or anything is about like he still has to just make sure everything comes under budget make sure that the films look good, that they can go out. Like, maybe he's not, like, he's not working for Kuhn Loeb or um, Goldman Sachs, who is financing some of these studios. Um, But he has a lot to do with the financial responsibility of the studio, as well as being a creative aspect. That's the thing that's actually lost, in the collapse of the of the studio system in the 40s and 50s, and why and where you have a divide. I mean, this is my argument about what where things actually go wrong is like the divide between the creative people who understand uh, uh, who have know nothing about money but everything about art, and the people who are money people who nothing know about art actually divides in a lot of way because I think in the studio system you had people like you know Selznick telling Vorkovich, "You have your own department, go wild." Here's probably your line budget for every month or so, or like how much we want you to spend. But like he understood how much things should cost at the same time he wanted, he knew the power of those sequences. That's like the thing that I keep thinking about, like when I think more and more about the Hollywood studio system.
2: And then you have right. a figure like like Lubitsch, who was mm-hmm. not only one of the most famous directors in Hollywood, he was one of the most influential producers, and yeah. ran Paramount for a year. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that line is also heavily porous. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a total push pull in a lot of ways. I'm just like always curious about these people who seem to really understand. You know, I just because we talked about Lubitsch so much, I, I you know I was writing. A lot about director's cuts and this idea of the director getting their own cut of the movie, and it was like it really doesn't get established until uh, the 1960s. But I found this great memo that uh, Ernst Lubitsch, when he was at Fox late in his life, I think like he was just kind of like working as a consulting producer kind of at the time. Um, but um, Joseph Mankiewicz is making his one of his first movies, Dragonwick, and Lubitsch is like like telling. Um, Mankiewicz, like you have only one more week. To finish your edit of the film, and I really, really want you to do the edit. At that point, you don't get a say anymore in the movie. But I think if you do a good job on it, then Gerald Zanek will allow your cut to be the one that runs. So, like, that's a good example of like Lubitsch understanding the system as it works and not saying "Woe is art," "Woe is the director, the artist who can't be." He's saying, "No, these are the rules. Like, if we play within the rules." good art will prevail and like of course I think this also ties into the larger the questions like when I watch a lot of 30s films that like have actually really interesting weird politics I mean like everyone talks about like Gabriel over the mountain which is this 32 film that suggests that fascism yeah. would be great yeah. in America but there's a do lot you know, of films do you know
2: that- our wacky story about that film?
1: <laughs> no no, what's the story? Uh, <laughs> god
2: oh boy i gotta tell us just because i'll never have another chance no one's ever going to bring up gabriel over the white house again so (laughs) um so uh november 8th 2016 (laughs) we have a election night watching party up here in canada Uh, to to blow steam i decide let's watch the only properly fascist film in hollywood history gabriel over the white house (laughs) and while we're watching it is the moment the results start to turn and i'll never forget that moment in my whole life but yeah it's a fascinating film absolutely yeah. one of the most bonkers films to ever escape from the hollywood system
1: incredible there's so many films from the 30s that have these weird politics that don't necessarily make sense um to our eyes even like the way we're taught history histories of labor histories of race like uh you know and i know like lots of people i know like gilberto perez who passed away last year has written a lot about race in john ford's film and the way that his film sort of both you know uh are have these racist elements but also try and acknowledge and work through racial ideas in a way that's trying to be more progressive and like it's part of this question that is the montage question of like having everything fit in this easy box because they don't fit in this box uh, in a lot of ways so and of course like one of the reasons, the, um, I, well, I've got two more films on a list that we haven't taught, but I'll bring up um, this Slavoj Vorkovich film that isn't widely discussed and isn't well known, um, which is a film he secretly did for the American uh, labor movement called Millions of Us. George uh, Evans worked on the project. Um, it's credited to a director named Jack Smith and Tina Taylor. I don't know, and I don't think anyone's found the research on who Tina Taylor, who she may have been, if she was a pseudonym, but Jack Smith, we know, is a Vorkovich Uh, pseudonym and this is a film that is about um, like the right to strike and to not be scabbed and it was an amateur film that played in a different circuit of films totally outside the Hollywood system and so it's interesting that this is a film he makes in secret while at MGM and so he still believes in these sort of rights that I think are representative certainly in Life and Death of 9413 of like trying to use the tools and techniques to create societal change
2: that film really stuck out at me, stuck out at me because because Vorkovich, most at least virtually all the other work we've seen of him uh, involves him divorcing the aesthetic components of that soviet montage from its initial political uh setting um and this was the one time at least i bet there are more that no longer exist but this was the one time um I I felt like, oh, wow, this is basically him doing Soviet montage in both the aesthetic and political sense in the U.S. Um, The last five minutes of that film could just be straight up lifted from, like, strike, especially with the opposing lines of of graphic cutting where it's, you know, Mm -hmm. marching left, marching right. And it also actually, it it really did, it reminded me, um, two of um, Lenny Riefenstahl's work, um, especially her... um, her opposition of graphic lines in all her Nazi propaganda. I I I've never looked into how influenced she was by the Soviet montage artists.
0: Well, I think that, I think some of this points up the idea of uh, indirect influence, right? Of surely, if Reifenstahl wasn't specifically influenced by Soviet montage, the fact that the style she uses within these films is comes out of that tradition is pretty inescapable.
1: Yeah, I mean, it goes to, I think, like, especially in Europe, the, the, the pan-European experience of films is, like, I mean, actually, it was actually very different in the United States where a lot more European films played in the 30s, uh, particularly in, like, local houses, like, small audience community houses more than uh, we certainly give credit for in a way that we think that the foreign film is, like, a 40s, 50s thing when it actually, you know, was very... Po- they were all these... but Like, you know, Balsham played in many, many theaters. A lot of Soviet films, Ukrainian films. Uh, less so once sound comes in, but a lot of these films played in a lot of ways. But, of course, these are techniques in a lot of ways. Like, what's the best technique? And, like, it, it makes sense that the same techniques that, you know, unite people or show people uniting, uh, say, against the giant corporate system as something like millions of us suggest, also could be those people uniting to face down um, the enemies of the German people, whether that, that be, uh, which, you know, are mostly minorities and Jews, which is horrifying, but like that these same techniques obviously have the same porous elements wherever you use them. And it's just the sort of the question that you use them. And so, you know, it gives me hope that like, Vorkapitch, you know, as he refined his techniques um, at a place like RKO and then MGM, felt the need to go to the streets and work with Joris Evans and, like, you know, show this sort of depiction. And, of course, the film has two montage sequences. There's one at the beginning where we meet our worker who's been out of work for two years. And it's just like, you know, the the beginning of the film is silent. And it's just him lying on a street and you see silent. these yeah. images of food coming in and different like, you know, health and everything kind of very similar to the white price Hollywood swirling that's going on. Of course, in the final sequence, which gets the overlay of the soundtrack talking about labor, uh, talking about the need to organize against these corporations, which are all organized to, you know, stop us from getting our wages as they throw wheat into the river to keep prices down, uh, up for the poor little woman, um, right? It's like all that works for the same sort of technique to bring it all together and really, um, you know, push this idea that, like, you know, there's a larger system out there that this one character can't see until the montage connects it all together.
0: All this ties back to sort of one of my favorite theoretical things about the principles of montage. Devin alluded to how it's difficult to break down the meaning of any individual shot in these sequences often. Mm. And that's, that's kind of the underlying idea behind montage, right, is that by juxtaposing different images, uh, a new meaning is created so that it's not simply a bunch of modular components where you understand one separately and it ties into the next, which is, that would be an oversimplification to call other styles of editing or, mm. or continuity editing to say that that's just how it functions, because it's more complicated than that. But montage is a self-conscious attempt to create an overarching structure of meaning across sequences. It's it's always
1: fascinating when you find these moments or shots or, you know, just like these things that, like, I mean, I'm just always surprised by, like, small sequences or small shots in films where you just, like, see uh, an, an, a non-intuitive way to do it as the way that we're if we're trained by... Watching classical Hollywood film in a lot of ways, and then seeking these sequences that feel non intuitive that call attention to themselves to get two from one sequence to the next I mean that's that's always kind of like the fascinating I mean the sort of final film that um I kind of had you guys watch was this short film that I believe won the Oscar. That you're called is so this is harris this is an rko comedy that deals with the uh the big band leader phil harris who's also a singer and the whole premise of the film is that everyone finds him really really attract all the women find him attractive and he's cucking all these other husbands uh <laughs> essentially um but like one of the things i'm fascinated by in this film are the 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 transitions there's one sequence where um phil harris is going golfing and to go golfing what the film does is it's sort of not an iris but it closes in the shot to sort of a a horizontal line i'm sort of showing this with my hands which is going to be great for the podcast um but it like goes to a small horizontal line and then the horizontal line like turns 180 degrees and comes back out wide So it's gone to vertical and then the vertical like sort of separates out like a curtain and you've gotten to the next shot in a way where you've essentially hid the shot in a way by showing this interesting graphic device. And so the graphic device becomes the way to hide your shot, thus accomplishing classical Hollywood work. But of course then calls attention itself as a new graphic device.
2: The way that it telegraphs kind of the mode representational mode of each scene by essentially if you have a dial that depicts how crazy are our editing gimmicks in any given scene the higher that dial is, the more that we're supposed to take a scene is not a representational moment of a moment in reality but as maybe a more fluid dramatic space in which we can more directly depict things right that opening sequence especially where you have the uh, kaleidoscope of it looks I, I thought it was an airplane, but I'm not sure what those spinning things are in the first minute. <laughs> yeah. um, but just the presence of that kaleidoscopic effect um, removes us from the dramatic reality of that moment, which lets it be more almost direct cell to us in terms of what it's trying to depict, which is so fascinating.
0: One thing that always really impresses me a lot in, this is just a, a general thing that impresses me in cinema, is when a technique is unconventional and I think... I'm not against doing this, and it can be good and impressive, but I think one often conventional way to use unconventional techniques is as a signifier of the unusual or or aberrations or very often of the destructive, right? So, I mean, the classic example is you have a monster movie, and the bad monster gets really dissonant atonal music, and the good monster like Godzilla or whatever uh gets gets more triumphalist tonal uh, uh conventionally satisfying music and again not against that because it can be effective and it's it's fine but what it tends to impress me more is when those unconventional techniques are just part of a way of unconventionally expressing the other underlying ideas of the movie if this makes sense like I would be much more impressed with to use the monster movie comparison again, if atonalism was used for both monsters, and maybe there were just different modes of atonalism, and maybe traditional tonalism, more classical means of composing, were used for the human characters and the and the human scenes. And that 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 stood out to me a lot in So This Is Harris, which has, especially in its first ten minutes or so, a lot of just weird sequences. It does not seem to be a movie with a plot for its first 10 minutes, which is more than a third of the film. And it very much emerges as a uh, a very plotty film. And those sequences, though, aren't working against each other. It's not like 10 minutes of dissonant, wild, completely disconnected stuff. It's 10 minutes of stuff that is about what the rest of the film is about, which is being horny and wanting to cheat on your spouse.
1: (laughs) Well, I think the, so this is Harris is a really great example of a type of film that only existed, again, in Hollywood for like five years in a lot of ways, which is like the sort of Quasi documentary concert movie. So like, there's so many examples. I think of um, there's the oh, it's the Betty Boop film that features Cap Calloway um, who performs at the beginning yeah. and the end of the film, but also plays a character in the Betty Boop short. Um, but there's, there's a couple these, of those. Yeah, yeah. There's all these films that were made that are like, well, they're really films that exist because this performer's popular. Um, they're signed under contract, so this is an RKO film. RKO. Um, is owned by RCA at this point, or RCA owns RKO, one of those ways Um, I believe RCA has Phil Harris, so it's like, great, let's do a film with Phil Harris, the point is to show Phil Harris performing his songs on screen um, because we have the rights to them and nobody else has the rights to them and people want to see Phil Harris so, like The only thing we have to do is decide, do we need a narrative at all? Of course, this film decides like, oh, yeah, I guess we should tell a narrative about how Phil Harris is screwing over this guy's wife because he's so angry that she would want to listen to Phil Harris and finds him so romantically engaged. And so it's like, again, it's one of these ways where like the Hollywood contract, as we know it, is reversed, where the more important stuff isn't the narrative as we thought about it these are really just like vaudeville sketches kind of thrown together that kind of form a narrative but it's really to show off phil harris and to do these fun numbers like the golfing number where all the women are trying to explain why phil harris is so attractively to him while all performing their very very bad golf swings in a way right it's like it's a lower version of the Buzzley berkeley sort of idea but it's the same idea or ethos in the same way
2: I think that's really tied to sound cinema at the hip at that point. I mean, the the quote-unquote first sound film, The Jazz Singer, it's essentially a... A vehicle for Al Jolson's talents, mm-hmm. the silent uh, dialogue sequences uh, almost feel like they exist in a different universe than the uh, stage numbers, which do feel just like documentary performances of Al Jolson. Um, a lot of those numbers uh, were just Al Jolson stock numbers that they adapted into a really flimsy story. Essentially, yeah. Um, a lot of the early trends of sound cinema can absolutely be traced to that one film being such a smash. Um, and studios just spending years trying to capitalize on that, I think. I want to, I'm going to throw in a non sequitur here. Go ahead. And because um, so many of the, um, so many of Vorkopich's gestures um, could not help but remind me of one of my, one of, of me and Will's cause celebs, <laughs> Will's rolling his eyes here as a director, which is Abel Gantz, who I think mm. his cont- contributions to montage, I think are often uh, kind of left by the wayside, even though I think that he, contributed just about as much as any single person outside maybe Eisenstein to the form, particularly in how um, Vorkopic uses um, uh, superimposed shots and Mm -hmm. uh, various overlays where um, uh, those couldn't help but remind me of so many sequences in LaRue and Napoleon, where Abel Gantz, who would uh, create meaning, and I think actually maybe more ham-fisted, but pretty entertaining way, (laughs) by uh, overlaying different shots uh, to create new meaning, right? The classic one in Napoleon is, you know, you cut from Napoleon to a shot of an eagle with the exact same framing and lighting, and then another shot with the two of them superimposed, just to make sure we understand it. (laughs) And again, I I suspect it's one of that secondary influence things because uh, Gantz was so influential on the Soviet montage artists, who were in turn so influential on vorkovich
1: we know that when vorkovich later taught at usc um university of southern california where uh, i did my phd as well go trojans i guess um but like that he would show sequences from um from the french surrealists so we're tying films like ballet mécanique and un the andalou and then of course from the russian films 10 days who shook Uh, that shook the world, October. So like, I feel like he was familiar. It's like one of these questions. And I think it also comes to that kind of point of like, okay, many films he would have had to quote unquote watch in Santa Barbara in the twenties, were they being distributed there? Actually probably think like maybe like, you know, but I think it comes to that point that like the French, like Gantz's role in the French commercial cinema and like the idea of the French commercial cinema in the twenties is actually much more closely linked with the surrealists, than say even what the soviet film industry is going on where there's sort of like the soviet masterworks that we're familiar with and actually the commercial cinema of the soviet era is actually like much more classically in tuned um where i think the french cinema of the the commercial cinema of france in the 20s is a little more actually pushing and trying to adapt the avant-garde techniques because of the sort of Uh, Cine Club circuits that are playing in the 20s. But the the point being, I think, like, you know, I think Vorkovic seemed to know films in a lot of ways. I mean, this goes to actually a theory that I don't think David Bordwell proves well, but I think it's a really, really interesting theory. It's in this book in 1940s narrative cinema in uh, Hollywood in the 40s, um, where he's talking about all the techniques that become really popular in 40s cinema. So we're talking about flashbacks, voiceover, um, multi-character devices, you know, all these sort of narrative techniques that really, really like seem to proliferate in every genre, some of them become associated with film noir, but they kind of show up everywhere. And Bordwell's point is that he theorizes that Hollywood is a close-knit community. It's a bunch of insiders who are all working to top each other in a in a different way. They all wanted so so like you know someone did two flashbacks in a movie and then the bracket come out, which has um, like seven flashbacks within each other and each one's unlocking a box. And so he kind of theorizes that well, like someone wanted to do better than what the other filmmakers did. And I think that's adaptable in some way to Hollywood in the 20s and 30s and where Vorkovich is working. Like, you know, he's making these films. He's also watching these films. So he's probably borrowing and adapting and trying to find ways. Oh, someone did that. Like, you know, write a letter and find out how they did that, because I want to do that in a way. Like, I'm sure he was trying to have these conversations with people about, like, what other people are doing and trying to figure out to adapt them, which
0: I think just everyone was trying to do. And he must have been not only watching Hollywood material, but he just must have been watching mm-hmm. all the cinema he could get his hands on from around the world.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely.
0: I watch a lot of films from a lot of different eras, but I
1: think there's something... You know, strangely, again, it kind of comes to this point that we're often taught the uniformity of classical Hollywood, and I don't think that's true. And every time I watch something from this era... You know, and we're talking about, like, B programmers, things that are just like, okay, this is the seventh movie that Betty Davis made in 1935, and, you know, it's not one of the well-remembered, and then something shows up that just kind of throws me off in a lot of ways, and, like, I always just kind of think about, like, those sequences and things that again break our assumptions and so like uh listeners have been listening to this i just you know always recommend like don't just necessarily check out the masters although the masters can be very good and are often very good you'll often be surprised by programmers in a way and like that's that's what i kind of spend like 90 percent of my viewing habits doing is just trying to find weird interesting things in the programmers of the 30s and 40s because you suddenly find someone's working totally out of the bounds of what's expected, um, and not just aesthetically, but, you know, even politically, um, in terms of race, um, in terms of gender, and you suddenly become very, very surprised. And then the more you might uncover about the history, you actually find out that the power dynamics that we assume work in Hollywood are not necessarily the ones that actually operated.
0: Sure, maybe it's fair to say that it's, it's good to try to approach our knowledge of a period, a style, a movement of filmmaking, whatever you want to call it, less as a code that we assign different attributes to and we make connections to, I guess, that this fits in this block and to approach it more as a process, which is more difficult but probably yields a better understanding of what we're watching.
2: And I think separating out... trends from a stereotype is important too. where um classical hollywood cinema is a process and a trend and a kind of center of gravity but it isn't a prescriptive description of everything made during an era and and this is kind of building off something that you wrote a while back peter um that i remember where um You have long advocated for watching non-commercial cinema from historical time periods, you know, stuff that isn't necessarily meant to last as art, but stuff that just is functional stuff, you know, industrial films, commercials, and stuff that can give us alternative looks into a time period and alternate streams of trends and processes. Um, And I think that is really important to understanding, not just cinema, but what people were like and thinking uh, in, for example, the pre-Code
0: era. Peter Labuza, you can find him at labuzamovies.com. His podcast is The Cinephiliacs. Peter, people can find you on social media. Do you want them to? Sure, they can find me at Labuza Movies, uh, where I'll be
1: probably talking about uh, a wide myriad of things while occasionally posting
0: uh, food that I make. All right, Perfect. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us what a cool conversation i'm really glad to be here thanks guys so much thanks for joining us today Paige smith is our associate producer if you enjoyed today's podcast come on and subscribe to it read it review it that'll help other people discover it if you want to come on the show or if you have an idea for something we can talk about or just want to ask a question about an upcoming topic that we can answer on the podcast you can get in touch with us by email via filmformally at gmail.com, or you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at Film Formally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. See you next time, folks.